Hi there. Thanks for joining me on Gift Biz Unwrapped. This is episode 103. We've had key moments where we've been like, no, we're not everything to everybody. That's not the kind of product we're making. Hi, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped. And now it's time to light it up. Welcome to Gift Biz Unwrapped, your source for industry-specific insights and advice to develop and grow your business. And now, here's your host, Sue Monheit. Before we get into the show, I have a question for you. Do you know that you should be out networking, but you just can't get yourself to do it because it's scary? Are you afraid that you might walk into the room and not know anybody? Or that you're going to freeze when you get up to do that infamous elevator speech where you talk about yourself and your business? Well, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't need to be scary if you know what to do. To help you with this, I would like to offer you a coffee chat. For the price of buying me a cup of coffee, we can sit down through an online video and I'll tell you everything that I know about networking and how I have personally built two multi-six-figure businesses primarily through networking. To learn more about this opportunity, just go over to bit.ly forward slash network ninja. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash network ninja. And now, let's move on to the show. Hi there, it's Sue, and welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Whether you own a brick-and-mortar shop, sell online, or are just getting started, you'll discover new insight to gain traction and to grow your business. And today, I have joining us Callie Hastings of Fat Toad Farm. Callie is the owner of Fat Toad Farm, which is located in Brookfield, Vermont. Fat Toad Farm is a family-run business that produces a traditional goat's milk Their award-winning sauces are based on the Mexican confection cajeta and are meticulously hand-stirred to velvety perfection. Callie has spent the last nine years mastering the art of goat's milk caramel making, focusing on traditional cooking methods and using a small number of simple, all-natural ingredients. The result of this process is a rich and creamy, not-too-sweet caramel that delivers an irresistibly complex flavor. Welcome to the show, Callie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As we get started, our listeners and I like to get to know you in a little bit of a different way, and that is by having you describe your ideal motivational candle. So if you were to portray a candle that speaks you, what color would it be and what would be the quote on your candle? So I just had to think about what I actually have for candles in my house. And the candles I have are these beautiful beeswax candles that my neighbor has made, actually. They have bees and beehives all around where I grew up, which is where the farm is and where our business is out of. And they make just beautiful products. They have honey, they have beeswax candles, they make soaps. So those are the candles I have around my house. And the color is just that beautiful kind of deep yellow honey brown color. And the quote is actually the quote I had in my yearbook in high school, which was, nothing is impossible in this life except for skiing through a revolving door. I like that. That always just cracked me up when I was that age because it was the sense of going out and doing things and trying whatever, but also kind of a sense of humor around it of, well, you can do anything, but it's really hard to ski through a revolving door. So that's always kind of been in the back of my mind. (laughs) I love that. And, you know, that speaks to the idea of continuing to move forward and not just go in circles. Yeah, absolutely. Get going, move forward. Yeah. Yep. All right. So Fat Toad Farm, 
super interesting name. I want you to start and talk a little bit about the farm and then let's progress into the caramel sauces. So tell us about Fat Toad Farm. Sure. So we started almost, I think, 10 years ago now. And it was kind of a convergence of family members. It was my sister and my parents and I. And we just all kind of came to the same place at the same time with the same goals, which was I was a year out of college. I had been studying agriculture and environmental studies at the University of Vermont. My sister had been living off and on in Mexico for many years and had a small ecotourism business there. And my parents were looking for a new profession, interested in homesteading and farming. And we all decided to do it together in the location where I grew up, which is in Brookfield, Vermont. Were you guys sitting around a dinner table or at a holiday celebration and all of a sudden you just decided you were going to do this? (laughs) Oh, something like that. I think it was more my sister and I decided to move back to Brookfield at that time. We were both really interested in homesteading and kind of living off the grid, sustainable principles. And my parents' products of the 60s and 70s time frame were very drawn to that as well. And I think we're pretty interested that this new generation was getting involved in this as well. And so we just decided to give it a shot. We didn't necessarily decide we were going to have a business. We just wanted to start growing our own food. So it really started super small, like literally one little seed as everything starts in the garden, planting and growing our own food, which is something you know most people do around here to a certain extent anyway, just homesteading because people have the land and like growing their own food. So we had grown up with gardens, but we had never done it with the kind of deliberate intention we had at this point. We started off by actually delivering veggies to people's doorsteps. It was kind of like a little mini CSA, but it was a little bit before CSAs had become so popular. I think we did that for about a summer. And that was actually when we came up with the name Fat Toad Farm, because there were just toads everywhere around here. You know, they're a really good sign in terms of biological diversity and the health of the ecosystem. And that was so much of what we were about that we just felt like they were a great omen. So we had Jolly Toad Farm and Fat Toad Farm and Silly Toad Farm. And we had, I remember sitting at the table and doing all these sketches of these toads. And (laughs) we finally landed on Fat Toad Farm. And our neighbor, who's a cartoonist for The New Yorker, actually offered to do the drawing for us. So now we have this great iconic toad, furry kind of fuzzy toad that he drew for us. He actually got fatter over time. He was skinnier back when he started. And he got fatter as the business developed, right? Yeah, exactly. The more caramel <laughs> he ate, the fatter he got. There you so. go. There you go. Well, I want to back up for a second. I'm not sure all of our listeners understand what a CSA is. So can you review that real quick? Sure. A CSA is Community Supported Agriculture. It's become very common where a customer pre-purchases food from a farm and then receives that food throughout the season, usually on a weekly basis. So what we were doing is we had neighbors who were ordering food for the week and we would put together a box of vegetables and then we would drop it off at their house for them to consume for the week. So you were kind of like a personalized farmer's market. Yeah, exactly. So that's what you were doing. And then you also came around this awesome name, Fat Toad Farm. Mm -hmm. And then... How did that progress to caramel? I see no connection between the two. (laughs) Yeah, we didn't either. 
I will tell you, it was never the life plan to become a caramel maker. But, <laughs> I, you know, I was a really big chocolate person, so caramel was a stretch for me. But now I've, I'm a convert. They basically. go really well together, you know. They do. That's my favorite. <laughs> we have a chocolate caramel, which is my favorite flavor. Yum. Uh, but yeah, so the way it kind of moved into the caramel is that we started with the vegetable growing, and we also started getting animals. We started raising sheep, and we had a llama as a guard animal named Dalai Lama. We had meat birds. We had laying hens. We just loved it. We loved growing our own food. We loved being out and working on the land. And my stepdad had historically raised sheep for most of his life. So he was really excited about getting animals. And he was interested in the dairy part. He wanted goats to milk. Cows are great, obviously, for milk, but they're much bigger animals. They require a lot more infrastructure. So we weren't ready to take that leap because we had to like build from scratch here. We are kind of an old farmhouse, but we didn't have like a bunch of barns in place. So you and your sister both came back to the area where your parents already were. Did you yep. already have this land and you developed it or did you buy it? Because now you had this vision of the homesteading. So we only owned, or I should say my parents only owned five acres of land around the farmhouse. So And they still do. What we actually were able to do was lease land or use many pieces of land from our neighbors. So they were very generous and very supportive of what we were doing. So everything that we were doing was basically our five acres plus another 20 acres of neighboring land. Do you live right on the farm then too? Or you go to the farm each day to work? I go to the farm each day to work. I live about three miles up the road. Yeah, it's a rough commute, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough life. No, that's one of my favorite parts. I live right in this area. I love this area. I grew up here, but I never imagined that I'd be able to actually make a living here and be able to be in this community long term. But I have been able to, which for me is it's hard to do in rural Vermont. There's not a lot of job opportunities. It's hard for young people to live here. So I feel very, very grateful that I've been able to do that. So Steve, my stepdad, was interested in the goats and wanting to have some milking animals. So we went with goats instead of cows. And we just started with four goats. Compass, North Star were two of them. They were sweet, sweet little animals. And we were hand milking. We would share that, but he was the main milker morning and night, just like cows. Goats are basically the same in terms of their needs for being milked. They're just smaller animals and they give less milk. They give about a gallon a day is the average. So he loved that. And it was kind of out of that. You know, you end up with four goats and a gallon a day from each goat. That's a lot of milk for four people to consume. So we started making fresh goat cheese. We started drinking raw milk, of course. We started making yogurt. And my sister, who had been in Mexico, had learned about cajeta, which is the goat's milk caramel sauce when she was down there. It's a traditional confection that the roots are in Mexico. Basically, the history is that when ranchers had excess milk, from the goats they were milking, and they didn't have refrigeration, one way to preserve it was to cook the fresh milk down with sugar. You just cook and cook and cook, and you'd end up with a caramel, and oftentimes much thicker than the kind that we make, but then you could put it in a box and it would store without refrigeration, and then could be eaten later in time. So the cajeta roots are in Mexico. There's also the dulce de leche, which is cow's milk, very similar in terms of process and history, but that's more from Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. And I had actually lived in Brazil when I was in high school for a year. And so I had been very used to eating dulce de leche. So this was very close to that, except it was just with goat's milk. So she kind of came back with this idea and was like, we should try making this. Like, this would be interesting. And we just tested it out in the kitchen and it was delicious. And we're like, whoa, okay. Right off the bat. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was delicious. It really, I mean, <laughs> 
Yeah, we, I mean, we had really never had it because we didn't grow up with like traditional Mexican cooking or anything. And so it was very new to us, but we tasted it. We gave it to our neighbors and friends and they were blown away. And we were just like, wow, this is like awesome. So we started making that as well. But really we were making quite a bit of cheese, quite a bit of caramel, selling milk and getting a couple more goats at a time. And, you know, you reach that point where you're like, huh, I guess like this is very expensive for a hobby. (laughs) Right. Maybe we should think about turning this into a business. And that was a key moment in time where we said we either need to really cut back on everything we were doing. Because at that point, we were meat birds, laying hens, sheep, big gardens, milking goats, pigs. We were just doing everything small scale, which is super labor intensive. And we just needed to decide a direction to go in. So we said, let's start a business. <laughs> Why not? Sounds like a great idea. So we decided to focus on the goat dairy and the goat milk products that came from that. So we actually invested in a cheese room, a milk house, a goat barn. We had to build everything from scratch. So we did that right next to the homestead, the house where I grew up. And we started buying more goats. So I think every year we doubled at least. And we were making cheese maybe three to four times a week and caramel once or twice a week. And really cheese was our bread and butter in the beginning. And we would make it fresh chev. We would make it in one day. And then the next day we would drive to all the local stores. We had about 40 stores that we would deliver to. And we'd deliver them the freshest cheese you can get. They'd sell out and then, you know, we'd replenish their stock that next week or in two weeks. And we sold the caramel as well, but really the cheese was what we were focused on. We would do farmer's markets and lots of events. And then a couple, I would say we did that for maybe three or four years, both the cheese and the caramel. And then we just realized that with the cheese, we were going to need to really up our game and invest in like a cheese cave and kind of go to the next level of doing more types of cheeses and not just this fresh cheese because that was limiting. Like we couldn't drive to more than these 40 stores and we couldn't easily ship it. And there was just tons of competition. I mean, many other places were doing it amazingly. So there wasn't a huge need for it in the market. And frankly, I didn't really like making cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Just a side note there. (laughs) You know, they said in the beginning, cheese making is 90% cleaning. And that was true. So I'm with you right there. I'm with you. Exactly. It was five o'clock in the morning. We'd start, we'd be done at seven or eight at night. It was tons of cleaning, long, long days, along with milking all the animals and everything else. And so it was wonderful. But I think at that time, we also just realized, you know, there's a lot of potential with the caramel business because no one was doing it to any scale in the US when we started. And we just thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we actually focused on that business and let go of the cheese and redirected the business growth? So we did. So we just dropped the cheese and... So were you all in favor of making that move? Um, yes, generally. It took, you know, obviously some conversations. I think it's hard to drop anything once you put so much time and energy and money into building it. Sure. And you built all the facilities around, too, to support it. Correct. But the good news was, while we had the cheese facility, that could be used for caramel production. And in fact, it was best case scenario because when you build for cheese, you have to like build to the highest regulations. And so that was built and ready to go for cheese or caramel. So we were able to just redirect all our energies into caramel and still use that same space. So did you shut down one entirely or did you kind of do some type of an overlap? Caramel ramping up and then the goat cheese going down? No, we basically at the end of that year stopped the cheese line and then started putting all that milk into the caramel and growing that. 
which was interesting because one of the benefits we had from cheese and caramel was cheese is a quick product. We could make it quickly, sell it quickly and get cash flow quickly from it. Whereas the caramel tended to be, we made it, it had a longer shelf life, so we didn't have to sell it right away. And people don't buy caramel every week, whereas they could buy cheese every week. And so that was one of the issues or like the unexpected issues that came with dropping the cheese is we didn't have that really quick turnaround on production and cash flow as much. That's something we've had to adjust to in terms of our product type. Okay, so going back to talking about the caramel, you knew how to make it, obviously, because you already were. You had pretty much perfected a recipe you liked, even though you were doing it on the side for a long time. So you're set with that. Mm-hmm. How did you go about how are you going to package it? How are you going to do your labeling? Like, turning it into a saleable product that's ready for shelves or trade shows, as you know, I've seen you at, at a show. How did that happen? Well, I think we realized that we had been doing things a certain way with the caramel based on farmer's market sales. So our look was kind of based on a farmer's market look. Our general image branding and everything was still, all I can say is kind of small scale Vermont rustic. And my sister actually came, a different sister, moved back from San Francisco and she joined our team. And she actually really helped rebrand us and get us to the next level of, I guess I would say professionalism and gearing us up for a market outside of Vermont, a much kind of cleaner, more finished look while still maintaining the authenticity of the farm and that story, but making it more approachable for a New York City consumer or a Boston consumer. So she helped a lot with that in terms of branding. We also got trained by a photographer from New York City on food photography and product photography. So I had always been passionate about photography and had experience doing that in the past. And then we decided to invest in doing that in-house and developing a photo studio. So as of several years ago, we now do all that in-house basically. Well, I'm looking at your brochure right now, and I would have anticipated that you had a professional come in. So you guys are doing a great job. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of, like, we just decided it's very important for us to have the creative piece to it. Like, that's something that we love doing. And so that's something we've invested in. But yeah, we reached out to the right people. We have food scientists that we work with. You know, we work with Cornell University to help with packaging, food safety, branding, labels, etc. But our look has changed very much over the years, for sure. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges as a small business growing, when you have to change every year and your labels have to change, your packaging changes. Sometimes it's hard to keep up. What was the trigger that made you decide you needed to change? I understand the point of being able to sell to people outside of your local area, Mm -hmm. the New York market, etc. But you're saying that you're changing every year? Changing every year is often small things. Like we have a label that we have, we get a food award and we want to add it to the label or gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So little things or ingredients change, you know, our recipe has changed a little bit over the years. And so we have to tweak that on the label, stuff like that. I see. Yeah. Or adding new flavors, new color schemes. Okay. So gift biz listeners, I want to just bring up a couple of things that Callie's been talking about. First off, you keep hearing this progression of change within the business. You know, one thing led to another and they finally analyzed, looked at some costs, looked at probably all of the labor you were putting in and ended up doing the caramel sauce. And then... They also reached out where there were areas that they may not know as well, such as photography, and then now even going to specialists for product development, label development, that type of thing. 
as a business owner, you don't have to know everything and going out and getting experts in certain areas makes total sense. And I would also say, Callie, because your logo and the feel is still a little bit more rustic, just like you said, to keep the story intact. It's also the beauty of your product, right? Because there's such a story and such a feel behind it. But professional photography and I really point this out for a lot of you who are listening, is so important because it's one of the first impressions that people get about your business. If you were to go on the website, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, Kelly. I'm sure there's photos there, but you'll see the level and the quality that they're producing. And somehow there's that correlation with, especially if it's a food product, well, that then represents also how they're handling the product, making the product and developing the product. If you have less than quality photography, people might also relate that to, well, you know, if it's a little sloppy there, how are they doing on the manufacturing end of their product? So photography, again, long-winded here, but really important for first impressions, especially now people go and see you for the first time online. Wanted to make that aside, Callie. Let's continue. Yeah. Let's continue on. So, all right. So you have the product. You're talking about how the labels are changing because of ingredients and awards. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, let's talk about that a little bit. I'm giving you bragging rights. Tell us about an award that you've won, but bring it back to how did you apply yourself? Did someone see it? Like, how does that happen? We have consistently submitted product for awards over the years. In particular, the National Association for Specialty Food. They have a Sophie Award program that goes with the Fancy Food Show in New York City. So that one we have consistently submitted to and won or been in the running for winning several years in a row. Our biggest award was with them, actually, and that was two years ago. We won gold or whatever it was for the best product line. And that was awesome because it was very different than just winning for one flavor that we had. It was they looked at our entire product line because we have lots of flavors, lots of sizes. We have gift options as well. And they looked at that among everyone else and we won for the product line. So I think for us, that was kind of the height of winning with the specialty food. That was really great. I think also the Good Food Award is another place that we've submitted to and won two years in a row. And the Good Food Award, they are meticulous, they are detail-oriented, they care so much about process, ingredient sourcing, they ask a million questions about what you're doing in a great way, like they are committed to, they're not just like, oh, it's organic, it's great, you win. It's like, no, what does that mean? How are the animals being treated? Where are your vanilla beans from? They want to know everything. And so winning that award for us is also just like, one of the highest awards that we can get in terms of recognition. So that's been really awesome. And then several years ago, we won a small business grant from FedEx. And that was a national contest. And we submitted our story, sent them our products. And we won that. And they actually, they gave us $20,000 for that, which was amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You're on like an award rampage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's been amazing. It's been really wonderful. and One after another. Yeah. So obviously, it's great for credibility. What else has that done for your business when you're winning awards? Oh, FedEx is a great example. It was amazing to get grant money from them. But really, one of the best things that came out of that is that they came and did a video of our business. And they were here for a couple days shooting. And now that's a video that's out there and people see and we get comments on it all the time. And they just did a beautiful job of telling our story in a way that we hadn't up until that point. So that's been incredibly effective. 
make sure to give me that link. I'll put it in the show notes so people can go and look at that video. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Sure. But yeah, I mean, all those things have been great for credibility. You know, if you're in the specialty food world, people know those awards, they look to them for new products and credibility. And so it puts you on the map, which has been great for us. Let's talk a little bit about trade shows now. How do you decide where you're going to go? And let's talk through a little bit about your booth, how you work your shows, and maybe some tips for success as we move forward. Good question. Always something we're talking about as we're evolving as a business and trying to allocate our resources and time wisely. Uh, They're expensive. These shows are very expensive. And historically, what we've done is we've focused on food shows, particularly the fancy food show, as well as the good food show, good food awards, mercantile. That's been great. It's absolutely foodies. It's stores. It's the retailers. It's online food people, etc. We've often done a year, then skipped a year, then done a year and skipped a year just so we're there when we have something new to present and where it's really going to benefit us. This is the first year that we did the New York Now gift show. That was a little bit of a, I guess we were like putting our toe in the water for the gift market because we know historically our product has done really well in gift and holiday in the fourth quarter. And that's been amazing. It just happened naturally, but we've never made a concerted effort to really approach that market. And so this was our concerted effort to do that. And it was awesome. It was so well received. And I felt like it was a really good match for the company. It was great because it was all new companies. It was people we just literally never heard of or talked to before. So it just helped us enter a market that we haven't even touched yet. We'll hopefully continue to do that and go to the gift shows as well. And we just started those relationships a month ago. So our goal is really to maintain those relationships and cultivate them because the whole business is about relationships. Sure. And this is a really interesting point, too, because I was in a way surprised to see you there because there aren't as many consumables at that show. But that's the value of it, too. You know, you're not in with all these other people where people are going tasting after tasting after tasting as you do in the fancy food show, right? So you are seeing a lot of gift shops who many times carry perishable line, you know, edible type products. So I'm so thrilled to hear that it was a success for you and you saw a lot of people. And I just want to bring out to our listeners that might be something for you to consider if you do craft shows or some of these larger shows, stretch out and maybe try something that is not a direct link with your product because you might experience something like Callie's scene here where she's entering into and getting visibility to an entirely different group of people. I also like that you're talking about the fact that you're not really worried about what you sold there. You're saying, you know, you're just now starting to work with these people and developing relationships. And I think that's really important in terms of judging a success of a show. Yeah, absolutely. That's so key to our general approach is that relationships throughout your whole business, they take a lot of time and you often don't see an actual conversion to a sale right away. Like there's so many soft versus hard sales. The soft is really the relationship building, getting to know your market and really understand like, okay, what do people want in the gift world and are we offering it? And I think it's interesting too, to just think your consumers usually tell you things that you don't even think of. Like we were never like, we want to make a gift product, but we just kept hearing again and again, like, oh, why did you buy our product? Or how did you get it? Oh, I got it for a gift for my brother or my sister. Oh, I got a gift for Christmas. I got it in my stocking. You hear it enough from your consumers. They're telling you like, here's where you're going to be successful. You are a great gift item. And so it's like, okay, like that wasn't our original plan, but we're being successful in that way. So let's leverage that. And like, let's go to that market and see if we can do more of that. 
Excellent point. Making sure you're listening to the feedback of your product all the way along. And your packaging really relates to it, too. Your packaging is beautiful, simple, it's colorful, but you still have your toad. You have your yep. cute, fat toad. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Along with you for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he's been good to so. us. He at least makes people curious. So our farm was originally called Apple Hill Farm back in the day. Like historically, it was an apple farm before my parents moved here and I grew up here. So we originally were going to choose that as a name. And then we looked it up and someone already had it. And I'm so happy because, well, that's a beautiful name. It sounds like many other farms. And I don't think we would have stood out in the same way. And the Fat Toad Farm, <laughs> while it confuses people, it makes them curious. They want to know more. They want to know the story. And they usually remember it. And that's one of the most important things is just to stand out and be remembered. You are exactly right. I don't even have to say anything else about that. You landed it. Totally agree with you. Give us an example of something that might have been a challenge along the way. Um, we've been making a product that no one else was making in the U.S. to any scale. And so we really, ha in terms of equipment and recipe and just like the standard things you would run into as you scale up a product, it was very hard for us to have mentors or coaches that we could rely on to help us. It's one of those pros and cons because in some ways it's like, great, no one else is doing it. So there's innovation and we're trying new things and it pushes you to places you probably wouldn't go otherwise. And at the same time, when you're struggling with the same recipe issue or the same stove issue again and again, it can be very hard to have breakthroughs because you have to learn the hard way often. And it takes longer too. It takes longer and it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah. So we've had to do a lot of like our stoves are actually a combination of things that we've had to come up from scratch to make it fit our stoves. Our recipe is a similar situation. So we've had to do a lot of customization for our product, I guess, as we've grown it. And we've found like so much pressure, I guess, is one of the big challenges in the food industry on preservatives, stabilizers, artificial colorings. I think I have gained a true appreciation for why people start putting those things in their products. For example, it takes us five hours to cook our caramel. That's very expensive. It's great because it's an artisanal process and it's beautiful. From a business numbers perspective, it has its challenges because of the expense of it. And so that's like a standard issue that caramel makers would face. And so you can shortcut it and decrease the cook time, but then you don't get the beautiful browning and flavor development. And so what do you do? Like you just add caramel coloring at the end and then hope that no one knows the difference. And so I've begun to understand, oh, that's why people start taking shortcuts. And then those are the ways that you add stuff to cover it up. And it's been very difficult, but also like the most important thing for us to stick to our process and stick to our ingredient profile so that we never added any of that stuff because then why are we doing this? Because the point for us is to offer something different and offer something relatively healthy speaking in terms of a caramel sauce. It's 80% goat's milk, you know? We never even had to think about consciously sourcing it because it's just, we never thought of not doing that. We don't add vanilla extract. We add whole vanilla beans. We don't add cinnamon flavor. We cook it with cinnamon sticks the whole process. So those have been challenges in the food industry, the pressure of being different than who you are, I guess. So how does that then relate to the price that you have to charge for your product versus your competition? Yeah, I think that's the key challenge is you have to account for those costs in your product. And, you know, I think there's been points in time where we've felt like, oh, God, I mean, we get feedback that our product is too expensive. And we understand that. And I think that has made us feel like, okay, well, how could we do this differently to make it less expensive? Sometimes in our minds, we've been pressured to try to be everything to everybody. And then we've had key moments where we've been like, no, we're not everything to everybody. That's not the kind of product we're making. We're not a smucker's jar on the shelf. We want to be different. 
we want to hold true to our ingredients and our values around the production of food. And that may mean a higher price point. And we have to be able to stand by that and not compromise on those other things to become what everyone wants. And just to understand too, that you're always going to be pressured on your price by literally everyone along the road. And you have to really hold firm and have a strategy around your pricing. It's not that we're never flexible on our pricing, but if we are, it's with a very specific intention and a very specific plan. Right. And your intention is not to match a competitor and then be yet another brand. I mean, you stand out because you're more the gourmet brand in that sector, right? Yes, absolutely. And it sounds like that is your conscious choice to stay that way. So when you talk about you've got to have a strategy, your strategy is to be the higher priced, higher quality, all natural ingredients, traditional production method product. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I can tell that you've said this before because you speak it with such passion. <laughs> in terms, you know, as you're describing how you make it and the value and how committed you are not to start adding coloring or anything else and shorten the production process. So that was spectacular. Well, and I think the contrary point too is we're also not, not going to be inefficient just to be inefficient. For example, we used to do a tag on our jars. It was like a little tag that explained our story and we had a string that went around the jar. Those took forever to make, to hole punch, to cut the string, to tie around. And in my opinion, as a consumer, I don't want to pay a producer to do tags and hand hole punch things. And like, I don't want to pay for that in your pricing. For me, that's not a good business decision. But if what you're sticking to is your traditional way of cooking, then that's something I want to pay for. But if you're being inefficient just to be inefficient or because you haven't figured a way to innovate or you haven't found the key places to have automation or equipment, then I don't think that's good either, if that makes sense. Right. You pick the best return you get for your whole production cycle, like you're talking about with the tags. Yeah. Let's turn now into our reflection section, Callie, and talk a little bit about you and how you've been able to continue making the decisions that you have leading to all of these awards that you guys have. And I realize that when we're speaking, you're speaking with about, you know, your whole family, the whole group, but you in particular here what is a natural trait that you have, and maybe you've had to call on it just because you are in a family environment, and that presents some challenges as well, I'm sure. But what is a trait that you would bring up and share with people that has helped you to be successful with your product? I would say a uncompromising commitment to quality and with that attention to detail. I, you know, I was thinking when you mentioned the photography, if you have a sloppy photograph, it's a reflection of how you're going to do everything else in business potentially, or can be perceived that way. And I think it's so true, whether it's how we label a jar or whether it's how organized our calendar is or how we present ourselves at a food show or, you know, a new flavor that we put out, we don't ever want it to be ho-hum, like that was kind of good or kind of okay. We literally want it to be of the highest quality throughout everything we do. Absolutely, especially if you're demanding a price that you are. Exactly. You have to be able to stand behind that. Absolutely. And Gift Biz listeners, we talked about brand a lot in past shows. And this is all part of your branding. It's not just the visual, what's on the label. It's how you conduct yourself, how you work with customers, everything that Callie's just talked about in terms of any interaction, any touch point, how your displays look at shows, even if you're out at farmer's markets. All of that represents a feeling and a belief that people are going to form about you and your business. 
So you want to make sure that you're present. And it might be casual. You know, I mean, here, Callie's product is upscale. It's more expensive, quality and production, everything she's already been talking about. So all of her labeling and interaction should go along with that. Maybe you're opposite that. Maybe you're super casual, relaxed, down home. If you have the product when they want it, you have it. You know, that may be your style and you'll have people who will love you and follow you for that as well. And then everything follows along in that manner. Not sloppy, but more casual. So I heard Callie talking about we needed to define what we are and then continue living by that. So I wanted to just underline that and bring in the whole branding conversation here real quick too. Okay, and then thinking about your day and how you work because you have such a long commute, you know. (laughs) 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 What tools do you use for more the business side of it, not production, but to either stay productive and moving forward or to create some type of balance? I'm a huge proponent of quality of life (laughs) and balance. And I say that having us have run a farm for nine years. And so what, just as another piece of information, what we actually did is we ran the farm end of things with the goats and milking them for, I think it was nine years total up until basically not this past fall, but the fall before. And then we actually sold our goats to Vermont Creamery, which is another Vermont business that makes just incredible cheese and butter. And so we sold them our goats just down the road. They're at their farm down there. And now we buy milk back from them and continue to make the caramel here. But that was a reflection also of a choice that was related to quality of life and balance. That's very hard to do when you're running your own business. It's also very hard to do when you have a farm in addition to that. So I've always been a big proponent since day one on our team of always saying, how are we meeting our quality of life? When is somebody getting a vacation day? We used to joke in the beginning when it was a farm, we would have a 20 minute break in the middle of a day in a seven day work week where we would go for a swim at the local pond and we would be like, oh, it's our 20 minute vacation. This is amazing. But it really was. (laughs) It literally (laughs) was the only break we had all week. So every year I'm always saying, okay, what's our next thing that we're adding? Now we actually have eight to five schedules Monday through Friday, which is a miracle for everyone here and making sure we're getting that much closer to health insurance and making sure everyone's paid fairly and sick days and all that. So as a business, while we can't be there on day one with every single thing we want to be able to offer ourselves and our employees, we're always working towards those goals every step mm-hmm. of the way as much as we can. So I think for me, that's a big, just kind of bigger picture. I'm always trying to make sure quality of life is attended to. And then just like practical tools, running, <laughs> exercise. That's important. Getting out and moving. Yes. Although on the farm, you probably have a lot of that still anyway, even if you don't have the goats anymore. Yes, yes. <laughs> there there definitely was. But I think even to have the time to run now for me is like a miracle. Right. I didn't have that for years. And so for me, just mental health running is totally essential for me and has been for several years. And then something as simple as a physical calendar is probably my number one organizational tool. It's easy to get caught up, I think, in all the internet systems and the phone calendars and all that. And I'm a very visual person. I like to have things in front of me, keeping my to-do list fresh and clean every day, having a calendar where everything is that I can go to all the time. Basic tools like that for me are really essential to staying organized and on top of things. You would be surprised how many people say that, a physical calendar. Yeah, yeah. 
You don't have to go after the newest thing just because everyone's talking about it. Exactly. And I think a lot of people are finally recognizing that. You yeah. know, that technology is great, but it's great if it's working for you. And if the apps or all these different things that they have fit in with the way you intuitively work. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty surprising. If I were to wait it, I'd say more people are doing, in our industry now, people who are makers and creators, mm-hmm. are way more the physical calendar. Yeah, it's like such a minor detail, but I would literally say it's 40% of whether I stay organized or I don't. (laughs) I get it. So let's talk about a book or possibly a podcast, apart from this one, of course, but is there something that you listen to regularly that you would share with our listeners? Sure. So one book I read recently, it's called Sprint. It's a book about businesses and ways of managing innovation in a productive way. So like, how you get ideas and how you test them quickly to see whether they're going to work out or not without dedicating years of time and energy into them. And there was a lot of just like really great examples of businesses doing that and just very interesting stories. So that's when I would recommend, or at least that I, you know, I found inspirational and just led to new thinking. The podcast I have found most interesting recently around business has been How I Built This. They interview different business owners like Patagonia was one, Crate and Barrel was another, the woman who invented Spanx. And they're just fascinating. I love hearing how people approach their businesses and what they value and things that people say that are like so anti what you've heard your whole life. And you're just like, oh, you didn't want business growth? Okay, that's something you don't hear in business. So that for me has been very inspirational as well. And Gift Biz listeners, just as you're listening to the podcast today, you can also listen to audiobooks with ease. I've teamed up with Audible for you to be able to get an audiobook for free on me if you haven't done so already. Sprint may be one of those books available for audio. I'm just not quite sure. But you can check it out or select a book of your choice. All you need to do is go to giftbizbook.com and make your selection. Okay, Callie, it's time for me to invite you to Dare to Dream. I'd like to present you with a virtual gift. It's a magical box containing unlimited possibilities for your future. So this is your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you would wish to obtain. Please accept this gift in our presence and open it up. What is inside your box? So inside my box, I imagine just opening it and the first color is green that kind of comes out of it and sunlight and people and animals. It's basically a vision for an active working landscape around me of pastures and forests and dirt roads and families and kids. And it's a physical manifestation for me of why I got into this business in the first place, which is trying to have a business with my family that was based on the land and that could create a quality of life and support ourselves, but also other people in a positive way. It's so core to my roots, having grown up in Vermont in a rural economy with agriculture in all of our history here. And my grandfather spent his years documenting the agricultural life that was kind of going distinct. And it's a struggle in Vermont to see farms dying, basically, and not being able to survive. And I want that future not just Vermont, but in other places as well, for that to be a viable future for people. And I want to be a part of supporting that and making that happen. Really well said, too. If there was one single place where we could direct people to come and see what Fat Toad Farm is all about online, where would that be? FatToadFarm.com, just our website, is great. And I would say for more of a inner look at the life and the business, 
and more of kind of the day-to-day moments, our Instagram as well. And Gift Biz listeners, on the show notes page, we will have links to all social media accounts. Also, the link that you'll get me, right, Callie, for the video. Yeah. So all of that will be over on the show notes page, which is at giftbizunwrapped.com. Callie, thank you so much for joining me and sharing so much about the development. This is kind of a life that a lot of our listeners, I don't think, are as well acquainted with in terms of the farming and how it evolves and all of the production that you go through. It was really exciting for me personally to hear how you are staying true to the product the contents, the quality of your product, even though you're higher priced and positioning in that form of the market. I think it's a good learning for everybody. And just to stay true to what you initially were doing and not succumb to some of these challenges or stresses that people want to put on you. You guys stayed true to what you truly believed in. I look forward to this pasture and this whole vision that you've given us in your dream to continue to come true because it's already here true for you right now. And may your candle always burn bright. Thank you so much. Where are you in your business building journey? Whether you're just starting out or already running a business and you want to know you're set up for success, find out by taking the Gift Biz Quiz. Access the quiz from your computer at bit.ly slash giftbizquiz or from your phone by texting giftbizquiz to 44222. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us for the next episode. Today's show is sponsored by the Ribbon Print Company. Looking for a new income source for your gift business? Customization is more popular now than ever. Brand your products with your logo or print a happy birthday Jessica ribbon to add to a gift right at checkout. It's all done right in your shop or craft studio in seconds. Check out the ribbonprintcompany.com for more information. After you listen to the show, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to jump over and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That way you'll automatically get the newest episodes when they go live. And thank you to those who have already left a rating and review. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you help to increase the visibility of Gift Biz Unwrapped. It's a great way to pay it forward to help others with their entrepreneurial journey as well.